Matthew 25, beginning verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two towns, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and, will, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for you, for the de prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal Thank you, Pastor Gene. You can hold your place there in Matthew 25. We're going to be walking through that passage this morning. And as a church, we are advancing through the Gospel of Matthew together. We're preaching through Matthew. We're reading through Matthew. If you are new here and you've not uh, maybe begun the reading plan, you still have time, we'd invite you into that. We're going to conclude the Gospel of Matthew in a few weeks from now. So pick up one of those reading plans. Read along with us in this incredible Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to continue on this morning. Matthew 25 is where we're going to find ourselves in just a few minutes. But let me, let me go just continue on a little bit from where Paul began last week in Matthew 24, but let me set up the context of 25 a little bit this morning this way. Uh, the year was 500 A.D. A few well-known theologians, including a guy named Irenaeus, studied the Old Testament and particularly studied the dimensions of Noah's Ark in the Old Testament and concluded, based on their study of the size of Noah's Ark, that 500 A.D. would be the year of our Lord's return. They were wrong. Many years later, in 1000 A.D., the Pope at that time, Pope Sylvester, determined that because the millennium was coming to an end, surely that was the year of the Lord's return. 
He was wrong. 1874, a man named Charles Taze Russell, who was the founder of the Watchtower Society, you know him as Jehovah's Witness, concluded that 1874 must be the year of the Lord's return. He was wrong. In subsequent years, by the way, followers of him, uh, part of the Jehovah's Witness, have prophesied that 1916, 1928, 2020? Huh. Maybe. 2020, a well-known psychic named Jean Dixon, maybe you've heard of her, predicted that because of all that went on in 2020, surely 2020 was going to be the year of the Lord's return. She may have not been the only one who thought that, but she was wrong. And throughout the years, there's been a, a, thousands of prophecies and wrong ideas chasing the return of our Lord. Some have even predicted that it will certainly be the end of the world if Tennessee ever wins a championship again. Maybe so. Maybe so. Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is unashamedly and clearly giving great attention and detail to his promised return. He's teaching his disciples in some of the last days with them before he goes to the cross and his resurrection and then his ascension to be with the Father. He's given a lot of attention to something hugely important for them and for us, his return. The question of the disciples is like many of our questions, all right, Lord, well, when is that going to happen? When are you going to return? In Matthew 24, 36, we looked at it last week. Jesus clearly says, But concerning that day nor hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but the Father only. And from that point, through the end of chapter 24, Jesus turns the direction of their hearts a little bit and says, Listen, when the date I'm returning is of much less importance for you than... How you are going to live now in light of my future return. Get that? That's the point of Matthew 24 and 25, especially 25 that we're going to look at this morning. To the disciples then and to the disciples today, the point is, this is really challenging and convicting by the way, our attitude and posture about the Lord's return reveals a great deal about our own heart. That's challenging to us. It was challenging to the disciples then. He says, verse 42, I'm backing up in chapter 24. He says, therefore, stay awake. Live alertly, diligently. You do not know the day nor hour that the Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore, you must be ready. You do not know when the coming of the Son of Man is. You'll come at an hour that you least expect. So the question hanging over this whole text for us this morning is this. How are we living now in light of the sure return of King Jesus. That's the question for his disciples and that's the question for us. What Jesus does, beginning in verse 42 of chapter 24, this is quick review and then we're going to jump into 25. He gives four or five different parables or stories teaching the disciples 
and us about our heart's preparedness now in light of his future return. I'm going to give you some of these quickly. I'm going to give you a few big ideas. Here's your first one. This is a review from last week. We are called to alert watchfulness. We are called to alert watchfulness. Look at verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know the day nor hour your Lord is coming, but know this. Jesus is going to give you an illustration. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not left his house to be broken into. You get the picture? Jesus says, uh, what, question. You don't know when. You don't know how it's all going to shake down, but tonight you know someone is coming to your house. They're going to break into your home. Your family's going to be at risk. What will your attitude be tonight? You're going to be on alert, right? You'll be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you know it's going to happen. In other words, that's going to be alert watchfulness. Jesus says that's to be our attitude as his followers, realizing that Jesus could come today. The return of Christ could happen tomorrow. Does the reality of Jesus' return spur us on to diligence and alertness as his followers? That's the point of that parable. Then he gives another one really quick. The first one is this. We're called to alert watchfulness. Second one, we are called to abiding endurance. Paul introduced us to this last week. I love that phrase, abiding endurance. Here's the balance that Jesus teaches at the end of 24 to set us up going into 25. Jesus could come tomorrow, but he might not. Now, whether Jesus could split the heavens and return and call his people to himself tomorrow, but the master might choose to delay. How do we live in that delay? Jesus teaches this. Look at verse 45. He says there's a faithful servant and there's an unfaithful servant and what reveals their faithfulness or unfaithfulness is how they wait for their returning master look in 45 who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his house he gives them their food in proper time blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he returns in other words that servant is about the father's or the master's business even though the master delayed even though he expected him here and he didn't return when he thought. There was faithfulness on display of the heart of that servant. What about the unfaithful servant? Verse 48, look at this. It says, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed. Well, he said he was coming here and it's been years and it's been 10 years and 20 years and my master's not returned. The delay reveals the true condition of the servant's heart. Watch what he says. But if that wicked says to himself, that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards. In other words, the delay revealed the true heart of that wicked servant. How do we live in light of Jesus' coming that he may come tomorrow, but what if he doesn't? Do we continue in enduring faithfulness, trusting the promise of our king if he delays? So we're to exercise and we're to walk in this alertful watchfulness. We're to walk in this abiding endurance. He may come tomorrow, but he may not. 
you see that theme repeated going into chapter 25. So Jesus continues. He's teaching this idea that how we respond and our posture to his return often reveals the heart of his servants. And then you jump into chapter 25. That's where we're going to be in the rest of our time. So two more attitudes that he teaches here are callings for us in Matthew 25. I'm going to give you the first one, and it's this. We are called to soul readiness. The point of the first 13 verses in chapter 25 is, is your soul in a condition of readiness when your master returns? It's a very challenging few verses. Now, Jesus is going to use a picture here of a wedding. That's the context. In fact, the picture he's going to use here is of a Jewish wedding. If you don't understand how Jewish weddings work, you kind of read about the virgins and the maidens, and they're going out with their lamps, and they've got oil, or they don't have oil, and you're like, what in the world is he teaching here? Let me try to explain the context of what he's saying about a Jewish wedding, all right? I know you've been just dying to know about Jewish weddings, but here, this is huge. In fact, so many elements of Jewish weddings mirror the return of our Lord. It's a beautiful picture. In other words, a Jewish wedding is very different from us Gentiles or a Western wedding. Here's the way a Jewish wedding works, and this is the context Jesus is teaching. In a Jewish wedding, marriage begins with something called a betrothal. A betrothal is determined when the, the parents of the bride and the parents of the bridegroom determine this would be a good pair, and they, they bring them together, and they begin with something, a, a legally binding relationship with one another, a commitment called a betrothal. The bride and the bridegroom are betrothed. Following that, the bride continues to live with her family. And she prepares for the time when that bridegroom, the, the fellow, comes and returns for the wedding feast. But it's not yet. The bridegroom, during the betrothal, the guy, he goes away back to his father's household and prepares for life together with his bride. Jesus makes allusion to that, by the way, in John 14, when he says, I go away to prepare a place for you. That's an allusion to the way Jewish weddings work. So during this betrothal phase, the bride knows the bridegroom is coming back. The, the, it's already consummated in this betrothal, but it's not yet public. So there's a waiting period. That waiting period could go a month, it could go six months, it could go a year, and here's what determines it. <laughs> I love this. The bridegroom, he's in the home of his father, and when the father says, son, you're ready, you've made everything ready, you're ready to support this woman, you're ready to provide a home for this woman, you're ready to lead this woman, when you are ready, go get your bride. The Father determines when it's time. That's why Jesus says, by the way, no man knows the day nor hour, not even the Son, but the Father alone. That's an allusion to a Jewish wedding. So at an undisclosed, unknown time, when the Father declares it's time for the bridegroom to go get his bride, he announces it, the party starts, there's a party at the bride's house, then there's a super consummation party at the bridegroom's house, and the point is, they're not sure when the wedding feast is going to take place. So, those in the wedding party have to live with a readiness for when the bridegroom returns because they don't know exactly when it's going to be. Does that make sense? That's the context of Jesus here and a wedding party. 
The ten virgins that he's talking about are maidens in a wedding. And he uses them as an example of readiness for the return of the bridegroom. Look with me, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins or ten maidens. The word virgin here is not necessarily a reference to their moral condition. It's to their role in this wedding party. They're, they're, they're bridesmaids, if you will, a part of the wedding party. So they took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Weddings in that day were usually at night. They didn't have light, so the only way they could have light was they had their lamps. These maidens' jobs were to have the lamps full of oil, ready for the ceremony when the bridegroom returns. Get the picture? Jesus is painting this. Verse 2. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. How can you tell the difference? Verse 3. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now, I know you're reading along in your Bible and you come to that and you go, I have no idea what this means. What does this talk about? In the Jewish mind, you hear of a bridesmaid carrying a lamp with no oil. The first thing you think of is they are not ready. They're foolish. They lack something within. It's a picture of the life of Christ in a person. That they lack something and they will not be prepared when the bridegroom returns. He goes on. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. They had the oil. They were ready for when the bridegroom was going to return. See the picture? Verse 5. And as the bridegroom was delayed, I want to mark that in your Bible because, again, that's a recurring theme from the end of verse, chapter 24 through these stories in chapter 25. What if he's delayed? What if he doesn't return when you think he's going to return? The bridegroom is delayed. What was the response of those in the wedding party as they were waiting for the return of the bridegroom? That's the point. He says, verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. Now, them falling asleep is not the point. Of course they fell asleep. It's night. They've been waiting for a while. The point is they're not prepared. Verse 6. But at midnight, there was a cry. By the way, if you're in the Jewish culture and you hear that, you go, there, there's never weddings at midnight. Who has a wedding at midnight? That's the point. Comes at an hour when you least expect. At midnight, the father has said, go get your bride. The bridegroom is returning. The wedding, par the wedding party is to be ready for his return. At midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish... The foolish in that moment picked up, their, picked up their lanterns, if you will. They ran out to provide light, and they realized, wait a minute, I got no oil. I'm lacking something that means I'm unprepared for the return of the bridegroom. They go to the wise, and they say, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, since it will not be enough for all of us, go to the dealers and buy your own. Go get your own oil. What's the point? Some things you cannot borrow from others. It must be your own. Point. You, you, you get your own oil. 
But the wise answered, since there will not be enough, go buy your own. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, so the foolish said, they were going to buy the oil. The bridegroom came. And here's your key, middle of verse 10. And those who were ready. Mark that phrase. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And this is one of the most frightening phrases in this whole story. And the door was shut. The door was shut. What's the point of this? The point of this quickly is this, that we're called to soul readiness. The point of this is not all the details of the Jewish wedding. The point of this is you had five wise and five foolish. The wise were those who had the oil. They were completely ready for when the bridegroom came. They didn't know when it was, but they were ready. There were five foolish who knew he was coming, and they had not prepared. They lacked the oil. And the oil seems to be here a picture of the life of Christ within a person. The life of Christ by the Spirit of God represented by the oil. They had never come to know Christ. Christ, therefore they were not ready for his return. And our takeaway in this is to be this question, is your soul ready today for the return of the king? And this is an incredible reality here. Michael Green, a commentator, said this, what a warning we have here. This tells us that it's also possible to often be in the church and to be in Christian company and yet be a stranger to the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ. It's possible to have a lamp that looks good on the outside but has no oil. It's possible that one day Jesus may have to say, I never knew you. Because you lack the life of Christ. There was never faith and never genuine repentance and never transformation. Verse 11. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open up to us. And he answered, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now watch. It wasn't their conduct that determined whether or not he knew them. The fact is they had never known their master it's a picture of we're not saved by our works, but our lives reveal whether or not we truly know the master at all. Their unpreparedness, their unwillingness to be prepared. They were not soul ready for the return of the bridegroom. This is one of those heavy passages that's intended to be heavy. It is to say there is a time when the door of opportunity will be closed to respond in faith and repentance to the invitation of King Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. Today is the day to make sure our soul is ready because we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And then we can long for his return and wait for his return with anticipation. Why? Because we're ready. We're clothed in the righteousness of King Jesus, not our own. Is that your soul's condition this morning? So the point of that parable is simply this. We're called to soul readiness. Are you ready? He goes on and he continues. He teaches another parable. He, he's taught us that we're called to alert watchfulness. We saw that. We're, we're called to abiding endurance. We saw that. We're called to soul readiness. We saw that. And then I want to spend some time on this next parable that Jesus teaches. And here's basically the big idea that comes out of it is we are called to active faithfulness. You and I are called to active faithfulness. Faithfulness. 
He's going to see a story here of a servant, or three servants actually, and their master goes away, and as their master delays, you have some faithful servants, and then you have some are revealed to be unfaithful servants. What makes the difference? While we wait, we just sang about it, we wait for you. But in our waiting, we are to be about the work of the Lord. We are to be about laying out our lives and pouring out our lives for his kingdom cause. We watch, we endure, but we are not to be idle. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in the letter to first of uh, Second Thessalonians, he writes to the church there at Thessalonica, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, you don't have to look it up, but he basically writes them because they had misconstrued the teaching of the Lord's coming to mean, okay, in anticipation of the Lord's coming, here's what we're going to do. We're going to withdraw and we're going to kind of create our own little society and we're just going to sit on the mountain, if you will, and we're going to wait for the Lord's return. And Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. And that's where Paul writes the second Thessalonians 3.10. He says, for even when we were with you, we would not give you this command. We said, if anyone's not willing to work, he's not going to eat. You've probably heard that before. Where does that come from? It comes in the light of we're not called to idleness. We're called to faithful, diligent service of our Lord as we wait for his return. That's an example of in, abiding and doing well. Faithful. Service. So what does that look like? Jesus is going to teach us beginning in verse 14. So he gives an illustration. He says it's like a man going on a journey. He calls his servants and he entrusts to them his property. Now stop right there. This was very common in that day. There's a master, evidently has a lot of property. He has servants. He owns a lot of wealth. He's very wealthy and he goes away on a journey. Now you hear that and you say, go on a journey. Well, what's he going? Like a week, a couple of weeks? No. Journeys in that day, remember, they didn't have airlines, they didn't have cars. Journeys could be years. Maybe he goes away to trade, we don't know. He could be gone for two, three, five, ten years. We think, I hear people say, man, that airplane ride of eight hours to fly over to the continent, that eight-hour flight just about killed me, it was so hard. This day, journeys take years. So he could have been gone for a very, very long time. But when he left, evidently, he promised his servants, I'm coming back. And in the meantime, while I'm gone, here's what you are to be about. Verse 15, he says, to the one servant, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two talents. And to another servant, he gives one. Each according to his own ability Then he went away. Now, the word talent there, if you want to circle that word, it's very important here because talent is not referring to some kind of physical ability we have. We take that idea and, well, that's a talented guy. A talent in that day was a measure of weight. The same commentator helps me here. He says, the master has given talents to his servants to trade for him in his absence. These are not necessarily abilities, but these are investments which the master makes into his servants. He's made an investment, and here's the point. If you're an economic mind, you'll understand this. Everyone expects a what on their investment? A return, right? Return on investment, ROI. This master says, I'm going to invest this much in you while I'm gone. Take what I've entrusted to you. Use it wisely so that when I return, there's a return on my investment. That's the point. 
So you have three servants. First servant, he gives five talents. Second servant gives two talents. And then this other guy, he gives one talent. You say, well, that's not fair. It's not about the amount it is given. It's always about faithfulness. That's the point. That faithfulness. So then, verse 19, what happens? How does this pan out? Now, after a long time, <laughs> there it is again. Jesus, it's a picture of delay. What happens if the master delays? Verse 19, now, after a long time. The master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. There comes a time of reckoning. There comes a time of accounting. There comes a time when the master returns and says, Hey, I've entrusted this to you. How did you faithfully use and invest what I had entrusted to you? See the point? Verse 20, response number one. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So here's a servant. He was invested with five. He took that investment. He used it wisely. Doesn't tell us how he does it. That's not the point. The, the point is that this one that was given five and the one that was given two, they take what was entrusted to them by their master and they use it wisely for an investment on the return, a return on the investment of their master. Now watch, this is key. <laughs> I want you to hear this. This is huge. Why does the master say good and faithful servant? Why does he call the servant faithful? Now listen, investing the talents did not make them faithful. But their use of what had been entrusted revealed who was truly faithful. See that? A delay always reveals the condition of our heart. So this one, these two servants... Like true Jesus followers, like you and I, here's this real practical application for you. Genuine, transformed, born-again believers see everything we have as entrusted to us by the Master to be invested for His glory. Amen? A few of you believe that. Let me, let me say that again. Here's the mark of a faithful servant whose heart has been transformed by King Jesus. Everything you have has been placed in your hands and in your life by him, for him, for his glory. You don't really own anything. We're stewards. You've been entrusted with these things for his glory. And as we wait, our perspective on life is everything that has been entrusted and given to me. I'm to be a steward. A steward manages that which belongs to another person. You're stewards. True believer reveals the heart of a faithful believer by how we steward while we wait what has been entrusted to you and me as God's people. See that? Is everyone entrusted with the same? No. It's not about equal talents, but it is about equal faithfulness. Don't play the comparison game. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I'll give you some examples. What, what are maybe some things that you've been entrusted with that you simply don't see as talents or investments from our Lord? I just listed some things here. What about time? So I'm convinced that one of the most precious commodities entrusted to us for the glory of God is time. 
He's entrusted to you time. You have the same amount of time as anyone else. Here's a conviction I have, and it's going to sound like I'm on a soapbox, and I probably am. I'm talking to myself. It breaks my heart to see how well we can waste time. <laughs> we, here's what John Piper says. We are a doodling, trifling generation that makes a profession out of wasting time. Man, we're good at wasting time. That doesn't mean we don't have leisure, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy, that's not the point. But we are so good at wasting time and using it on trifling things that simply don't matter. I'm convinced that time is one of those things that have been entrusted to us as God's people. How have you used the hours and days and weeks and years and moments for my glory? It's going to work that way. How about this? How about your children? If God has given you the grace of children, does it give everyone children? I understand that. But as parents, we realize the Bible says that our children are gifts from the Lord. And here's the key. The Lord expects, if you will, a, a return on his investment, meaning Psalm 127 says children are a gift from the Lord, but they are to be like arrows shot out for his glory, meaning it is our responsibility to take what was entrusted to us and invest in our children in the truth of God's word. They are entrusted to us. We've been given that stewardship. By the way, parents, this might help you. You don't own your children. They're ultimately not even yours. They're his. For his glory. That's why as a church we spend so much time talking about things like the family discipleship plan and a tools and a pathway and a, a, a resource warehouse for you to know how to invest in your children in a way that honors the Lord. They've been entrusted to you. We are to invest in those children given to us. What about the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel, Paul says, is a stewardship that has been entrusted by God and to us. You don't own it. It has been given to you, and it is to be given away to others. We are not keepers of the gospel. Yes, we guard the truth of it, but it's a stewardship that's been entrusted to us. I'll give you another one really quick. And this one's one that I wear, I, I, your other elders wear. We, we're convinced as your elders and your pastors that the Lord has entrusted to us the stewardship of this amazing congregation of people. We, we are honored before the Lord to stand as your leaders and your pastors. And at the same time, I pray in faithfulness, we are, according to Titus 1.7, overseers. We are God's stewards, it says. We desire to lead you with leadership that is fulfilling our responsibility to, before the Lord. You are a stewardship that has been entrusted to your elders, your pastors, and we bear that weight. It is a joy, a gift that has been entrusted. We want to be faithful. So just as you hear that, what are those things that have been entrusted to you that are to be invested wisely for the glory of the Lord? Verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That was the first response. And what about the other guy? He only received one talent. How did he respond? Look at verse 24. He also who had received the one talent, who had taken that talent and buried it in the ground, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. He's already making excuses. By the way, unfaithfulness always makes excuses. 
That's what he's doing. Lord, it's really your fault. I knew what you were like. I knew what you were character like. So I went and buried it in the ground. So I was afraid, verse 25. I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what is yours. And almost this pious tone comes back from the, I'm giving you back what's yours. Hiding the talent in the ground is not what made this servant wicked, but his stewardship of what was entrusted to him revealed the true condition of his heart. See that? Jesus refers to him, he continues on in this story, he says, this wicked and slothful servant. Now, listen, beloved, why did he bury the talent? A lot of conjecture about that. One is, in that day, the most secure place to bury treasure was in the ground. So maybe he was doing that out of security. He had a a mindset toward, I've got to be safe. I've got to be secure. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was out of comparison. You know, he he looked at the other guys and said, well, you got five. You got two. And all I got is this one. And what good is this going to be? Sometimes we lie to ourselves that way. What what good can I be to the kingdom? I'm not gifted or like, maybe he played the gift of, or the game of comparison and he simply buried what had been entrusted to him. We don't know, but here's what we do know. Primary reason he responded as he did is because he lacked a relationship with his master. He had a distorted view of his master. He didn't really know his master and that's the point. The delay of the master revealed the heart condition of the servant. Verse 26, but his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. And then verse 30, these words from the master, and cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's obviously an allusion to the reality of a place called hell. It's a real place. Who goes to hell? Those who don't necessarily manage everything right? No, those who have never come to know King Jesus as Savior and Lord and have never come to a place of repentance and faith and then the life they live manifests their heart, a heart that doesn't know Christ. And those who reject the gospel and don't know Christ, yes, they spend eternity in a place called hell. The delay of the master revealed the true condition of their heart. See, this language here of wicked, slothful servant is never used of true believers. It's never used of true disciples of Jesus. Always those who may on the outside look that way, but time reveals the true condition of their heart. The delay of the master revealed the true condition of their heart. That's a lot. Jesus is declaring without hesitation that he is going to return. He may return tomorrow, and he may not. And our attitude in his delay reveals the condition of our heart. We're called to alert watchfulness. We're called to abiding endurance. We're called to soul readiness. And we're called to active faithfulness. Now, I'm going to wrap it up this way. We're going to look at these last few verses as kind of a response to this. I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play. I want you to check out all, man. I want you to stay with me. Jesus is going to teach one last parable. We're not going to have time to go through the whole thing just for sake of time. But then you get down to verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 31, and here's the reality. After all these teaching and after all this that Jesus has taught about the preparedness of our heart, he comes back to verse 31 and he reminds them again, there is a day when I'm going to return in all my glory. Verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory 
all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Listen, beloved, I want you to know and be encouraged this morning, the king is coming in his glory. And the reason he says it like that is now we worship a king who has not yet been publicly coronated. We follow by faith. But there is a day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and every eye will see Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus is coming again, and he will sit on his throne of great glory. Come, Lord Jesus. He continues on, and he says, at that time, verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations, all the peoples. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He is coming again and he will judge righteously. He will separate the people, the sheep from the goats. The sheep, those on his right, the goats on his left. How is that determined? He says the king will say, verse 34, to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you brought me in. I was naked and you clothed me. He says he'll judge righteously. That's how you know the sheep from the goats. And you say, wait a minute, you mean doing all those things makes me a sheep, one of God's people? No, no, no. Faith in Christ and Christ alone is what makes us right with God. But the life that flows out of that reveals the true condition of our heart. And at the judgment, the evidence will be clear of the lives we've lived, revealing who we truly are. No one is saved by what they do. But what we do always reveals who we truly are. That's the point. He says to the sheep, those who have trusted in Christ and Christ alone, enter into the joy, the joy of your master. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. In other words... There was no fruit in your life that gave any indication that you were a true follower of King Jesus. Because you'd never been transformed, you had no oil, you were not prepared. There are only two eternal destinies for mankind. One is the joy of our Father through Jesus alone. And the other is eternal separation in a place called hell. Those who reject Christ. This morning... The door is open and there's an opportunity for those who do not know to respond in faith and repentance. For us, here's our response and I want you to wrestle with these questions. Just with your head bowed for a minute. We're going to stand and sing and just, there's a lot here. I know that. Covered a lot. I know that. But now just a time of faithful response to the Lord. Wrestle with these questions. Are, Are you watching alertly knowing that Jesus could return? At the same time, are you enduring well? Because he may not. It may be 100 years, 200 years, we don't know. Are we enduring well? 
Is your soul ready to meet him? Do you have the oil of the Spirit of God through faith? Is the life of Christ in you, the repentance and faith and trusting Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection and that alone? And are we faithfully serving while we wait for our master to return? Lord, I thank you for the reality of your coming again someday. Thank you for the truth of Matthew 25. I pray you take these words and you bear much fruit in our lives, Lord. Let us walk alertly. Lord, let us endure in an abiding way. God, I plead for any soul here today who is not ready to meet their master. And God, I pray for us that know you, that we will live an enduring faithfulness and active service, longing and waiting for you to return. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.